The Natural High. Hello, amigos. In this episode of The Natural High, I speak with nomad and bon viveur Tiffany Ford to riff about the status quo, travel, capitalism, and much, much more. As ever, you can follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the site at naturalhighclub.com for loads more pods. Enjoy the show. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So where are you? I am in middle of nowhere Wales at the moment. Whereabouts in Wales? Because I was actually born in Wales. You know, that's an excellent question. <laughs> you don't know where you are. Um, <laughs> you know, why should I go and ask, you know, for specifics from the local sheep population? Um, yeah, no, it's um, like Kerfilly County or something. Um, Kerfilly, okay. It's it's about 15 miles from Cardiff. Wow. Uh, um, how did you end up there? You, I know that you're something of a nomad and I want to get your whole bi- travel biography but how did you end up in Wales? <laughs> well, let's see, knock on wood, all fingers and toes crossed, maybe met the right person, but, you know, time will tell. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Obviously, you're American. Tell us something about your, your upbringing and where your thirst for travel came from. Um, I Well, thirst for travel, I think that was just inborn. Um, I don't come from a pe- family that's remotely cosmopolitan or that are travellers. There is obviously a stereotype, a cliche about Americans that they don't travel necessarily as much comparatively as as other nations, as people from other nations. Do you do you think that holds true? Do you think Americans are great nomads, or or is it just a a vast generalization to suggest that they don't necessarily? No, I think travel that definitely much? holds true. Hmm. And I know you're I know you're living there now, yeah. and I think you've probably been there a year or two. Is that? I mean, you're definitely over a year, but is it two years, years or going on three? Three years now, yeah. Yeah. So, which you're kind of soaking things in, but you also live in San, San Francisco or that area, right? Which is a very different. The unfortunate part is that big bit in the middle. You know what I mean? Trump belt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, uh, I mean, really, the, the non-Trump areas are just basically somewhat urban metropolitans for the most, mm. most part. Uh, outside of that, which yeah. is the vast, vast majority of the country, right? Is that? But anyway, um, no, I wouldn't say that Americans do travel very much. And I, I've thought about this a lot, and I think it's for a few reasons. One, um, you're, and you've been there, right, in three kind of very interesting years, where, hmm. where, right, we have to make America great again. There's no better place than this. You know, we don't need the rest of the world. Mm. It's, you know, it's very much coming back to that mentality, um, which was present. Nationalism, would you say? Yes, very much so. And, um, but which that's always been an element in the United States. I mean, people going around, I mean, you, the UK was an empire, but do, do people really go around saying like, this is the best country in the world. And, you know, I would never leave this. I mean, there's going to be a small minority, but that's a very common um, mindset. And that kind of thought is inculcated into people how many people have said to me, you know, why do you need to travel abroad? You haven't seen this whole country yet, or this country is the best country in the world. Why do you need to go anywhere else? Um, mm. So there's very, very strong, yes, sense of nationalism, and you're already in the best place in the world, so there's no need to go anywhere else. Second, I think, <laughs> and as you know, the time difference just between us is eight hours. Country is big. It takes time to get out of it. You know what I mean? 
even if you're flying. Right. Um, mm. I used to live in Seattle, so I was in your time zone. And I, you know, used to feel that, you know, getting to Europe, it just feels like it takes even longer. East Coast, not so bad. Uh, but it's it's a big country to try to get out of. It takes time. It takes resources. Um, right. In, in America, people aren't taking holidays for, for two, three weeks or anything like that. So even if you've got the money to get abroad, right, you maybe don't have the time or a lot, a lot of it. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I think that those are two big reasons why people don't get out and just fear of the unknown because the culture is very fear mongering. You know, just say the word socialism to somebody and see how they react. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think they're all really valid points. Another mitigating factor for me, having lived here, is that it is a, as you say, a vast country, a vast continent. And it's also yeah. so varied. I mean, it's so beautiful. And mm-hmm. there is so much to to enjoy and to experience in America. So I suppose to a degree that is a mitigating factor as well, which, you know, many countries in Europe are absolutely beautiful, but they're so much smaller. Yeah, Texas is bigger than the, the largest country in Europe, right? Like, and, uh, you know, I love the UK. I love Europe. I love being other places. But, you know, I refer to the UK as like the islands. I'm on the island. You know what I mean? Like, or people are like, mm. you know, oh, that's like three hours away. I'm like, I drive three hours. I've still gotten, like, if I'm at, I'm at my mom's in Pennsylvania, I drive three hours one way to meet a friend that lives in Ohio and for the day and come back. So I drive six hours in a day and I'm like, that's totally doable. You know what I mean? Or friends will drive eight hours, 10 hours straight one way to come up and see me, right? So if somebody here is like, oh, that's an hour and a half away or it's three hours, right? The sense of distance is very different and like what's plausible for driving in a day. And um, where, you know, but we live in such a big country. What's your favorite part of America? Um, If I had to move back to the States, um, well, first, let me say uh, where I've lived. So I was born and brought up uh, in southwestern Pennsylvania, not cosmopolitan, not exotic. Um, actually think that like that. Pretty like, beautiful, though, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's lovely. It basically looks like Wales. It looks a lot like, England, you know, um, and okay. um, it, it's hilly. It's in, you know, the foothills of the Allegheny Mountains, etc. All that could be beautiful if you choose to take it that way. And um near the panhandle of West Virginia, but it's also kind of like deliverance area. If you've ever seen, ever seen that film. Um, okay. Right. So that's where I started. Or else I spent a little bit of time in Ohio. That's not worth mentioning. Um, near Lake Erie. Um, I was in, lived in Nashville for a year. That was as far South that I have ever been living um, or will ever live again. Um, that was probably the biggest culture shock of my life living in the bible belt um spent time in texas because right. uh, we had relatives there spent time in florida florida is kind of a little bit more like the northeast it's just kind of stuck at the bottom um then let's see where else oh yeah new england so i lived in um at, you know just outside of boston for quite a few years and the last time i lived in the states i lived in seattle and um so I still have a place in downtown uh, Seattle that, that that I have. And um, so I'm very much in touch with what's going on there. Wow. And if I had to move back to the state. I've heard it's a really cool place, Seattle. Seattle is beautiful. It is really cool. I thought that that could mm. be the end of my, my itinerant days, uh, thinking that it's very kind of suited my my demographic. It's, you know, very vegan friendly. It's eco-friendly there's lots of awareness lots of educated people it's beautiful it doesn't 
I would prefer it to be colder, but it doesn't become very hot generally, at least not for very long. You know, it's got everything. If you Mm -hmm. want mountains, there's mountains. You want rivers. You want lakes. You want oceans. It's beautiful. And um, yes, but I would move back to New England, um, you know, if I had to move back to the States, because I think culturally it fit me better. What I struggled with in Seattle, and which is a bit of a phenomenon in the Pacific Northwest, is called the, well, for Seattle at least, is called the Seattle Freeze. People are very friendly. It's kind of like being in the southern United States where people are very warm, very friendly, without that accent. Um, But they're very aloof. They're very distant. You think you meet them and you get on like a house on fire, but then you really don't hear from them again. It's it's very rare. It's it's very difficult to form solid relationships with locals. Um, And it's just Mm -hmm. a phenomenon up there. I can't say why it is, but kind of the time I spent there and the thoughts I had on it was because so many people live there, they're born there, they're raised there. It's a beautiful place. Um, you know, there's great possibilities for education, options for education, um, for the size of the city, which isn't terribly large, but that in the in and around the, the city, there are so many large businesses, you know, that you can have a lifelong career, you know, either... These days, we don't necessarily stay in one company, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other professional opportunities. You, I think most of them just don't have to leave also. So they have their network and they maybe don't need to add more people to it, right? They've got their, maybe it's childhood friends, school friends, university friends, but it's just, it's hard and just culturally, they're a bit aloof and that I really struggle with. Mm. Okay. Um, a, a very dear mutual friend of ours uh, suggested to me that you um, were very much immersed in the corporate world for a long time, but that, that you sort of moved away from that, um, consci- consciously moved away from that. You don't have to go into too many details, but it, it, is that accurate? And could you explain a little bit about it and why you did it? So, you know, the corporate world was never actually living the dream for me, although it's a nice paycheck, um, but not at least in the roles that I had had, largely they weren't very satisfying on a personal level, right? Um, and and although there were many instances where I... What sort of field were you in? Yeah, so my background, I have a law degree and an MBA, and I predominantly focused my career on international corporate direct and indirect taxation. Uh, so lots of, you know, corporate planning corporations with, you know, they have little boxes that sit, you know, sub sub corporations that sit in, let's say they sit in, uh, you know, Bermuda, something sitting in Luxembourg, other like offshore low cost jurisdictions, or they have, um, you know, just entities everywhere, you restructure for tax reasons, you move things around. Uh, you see a lot of that in the news as if it's tax evasion when, yes. when, it's, Controversial. when it's Google, it's Apple, it's whatever, right? We're not paying enough so we help with, I would help with that kind of tax planning in a direct uh, taxation sort of sense. And then indirect tax. How do you feel about that? Because it is very controversial, isn't it? Do you think it's cheating on the part of the corporations? I don't. Um, now, I'm, okay. I'm not a hardcore capitalist. I, am, I would say I'm a capitalist. But in the United States is, I think, as pure capitalism, a model of capitalism as you can possibly get, especially, you know, as things have been going and since Trump took office, because mm. I think capitalism is, is a great thing, <clears throat> but you need to have capitalism, you know, with some sort of conscience. And you're not going to voluntarily get corporations and those who lead them to have a conscience because they are beholden to the shareholders and the returns the shareholders are getting. 
right? So that's why their concerns are not what's happening to the environment or the people who live in and around their industries, um, the quality of their products. They want returns. That's what the bottom line is. So I feel you do need mm -hmm. more regulation. And, uh, and unfortunately, the United States is becoming even further deregulated. Um, but you, you have to regulate in some corporate consciousness because they're not voluntarily going to do it. Now, when it comes to tax, um, you know, basically the rule is whether you're, um, you know, an individual like us or you're a legal entity like a corporation, we have no obligation to pay the maximum amount of tax, right? And because the world is so global, it's it's not cheating. It's not any of that. It's that times have changed so quickly that countries haven't been able to keep up with them. In when the when the internet and online shopping, etc., the advent of that, um, you know, countries in states really struggled with that and that loss of revenue because they didn't know how to tax it, right? So now that world is changing, at least from a consumer perspective. That, right? So before in Europe, for example, if I bought something, uh, particularly a service, if I bought it, we're sitting in the UK now. The VAT rate is twenty percent. Um, you know, if I bought it from Luxembourg, which had a lower rate, I saved. 5%, right? Or if I bought it, got, you know, possibly from like Azores or something off of Portugal, right? It was even less, 13%, right? That's a 5, 7% differential. Um, but if instead you'd tax at the place of consumption, right? If I bought it from wherever, but I have to tax it, you know, I should pay 20 based on where I'm sitting. So it's just that the legislation and the laws need to catch up with how times have changed. We always blame the corporation immediately, don't we? We always sort of by default blame the corporation, but I suppose the governments are the ones that set the tax rates in order to purposefully attract uh, corporations to their countries. Yeah. Ireland is a great, is a great example um, mm. to, you know, set corporate tax rates low to attract, you know, headquarters to shift to where they are, right? Because that they get much more revenue or to give tax breaks to companies to move into you know, particular, not, 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 it's not just Ireland, this is just a practice that, that's done in any particular jurisdiction. You know, I'll say, you know, give tax breaks. Oh, oh you know, I think, I can't remember if it was Amazon or Google recently um, having a look around in the States to set up some much larger operations in the East Coast. And they were looking at different cities and the cities are just courting them and the states are just courting them, offering everything they can to make it, you know, as kind of inexpensive as less expense least expensive to this this mega corporation is possible to set up because then the ancillary benefits to the state and the people who live there in theory would be overall beneficial mm. but no i don't i don't really agree that you know all the, the corporations are to blame it's just the 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 government needs to figure it out and catch up. Well framed. So you were earning an, a nice amount of uh, money each month. You know, you were comfortable, you were safe, you were secure, but you weren't sated. Oh, I was not. It was a little bit more on the soul destroying side. So what happened? Um, although there were many roles that were, you know, rewarding in, in different ways, but kind of as you move up, in my experience, and as you kind of move up towards, you know, senior and executive levels, it kind of becomes less about the substance of your practice area and less about leading teams and the focus shifts to getting work done through other people, but that's, that <laughs> is still okay. Um, but, you know, more so dealing with colleagues, peers, 
superiors, um, egos and personal agendas um, for their success. It's the rare person in senior levels of, you know, corporate culture anywhere that clearly has the good of the company in, you know, first and foremost in their mind. What's first and foremost generally in their mind is their own career and the success of them and maybe maybe their team provided, you know, of course, that um, is integral to their own success. But it's very rarely this holistic, everybody is truly working for the good of the company and whatever whatever is being produced or whatever service is being rendered, et cetera. And I'm not really, I didn't do a lot of studying just to deal with people's egos, you know, else I would have probably gone into psychology. So is that in microcosm, basically what the problem of the whole world is that we're all just selfish and greedy? I think so. That's why we're all stuck in our houses now, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. People say, oh, I, yeah, I love animals, but oh, I like bacon, right? That's like the cliche. Um, not that that isn't largely true. I love my cat, cat, but mm, I like hamburgers. Um, and as with any kind of really large issue or cause, I think, right, whether it's voting or climate change, and obviously the issue we're dealing with now is kind of hand in hand with climate change because the animal agriculture um, as such is the largest you know, contributor to global warming, climate change, whatever, you know, it needs to be called these days. Because obviously, mm-hmm. this is a whole Pandora's box of issues. Um, but from a farming perspective and world resource perspective, it's, as you know, as I think you know, um, just so resource intense. I was just listening to uh, another podcast today and whether the fact is completely accurate, but I know that it's um, approximately accurate that let's say like the pharmaceuticals uh, manufactured just in the United States, 70% of those go to the animal agriculture industry. And you know what a pill culture in the United States is to begin with for humans. Um, so mm-hmm. that's just the scale of how huge and intense animal farming is which then leads on to, you know, climate change, corporate, and kind of everything else that's, almost everything else that's wrong in the world because people don't have a enough of a conscience to um, think about living in a... The treatment of animals is the thing that, that hurts me the most in my in my world i see stories about humans being abused and terrible things happening happening to humans but you know the honest truth is when i see a story about animals being abused that hurts me so much more and i read an article yesterday in the guardian about how tens of millions of animals were being slaughtered in america um due to the coronavirus i mean they say due to the coronavirus but obviously there's a bigger picture there Tens of millions of, of chickens, and they were talked about the methods for um, for killing them. They were suffocating them with this foam uh, stuff, and it, it just literally, you know, makes me makes me cry. And I posted it on Twitter, and I lost some followers as a consequence. I lost followers because it's something that even people who are conscientious they turn away from this situation because it's so horrific. It's so lo- it's so part of the status quo. It is, and it's in that, and that's so. It's it's so hidden. That's why, you know, the slaughterhouses don't have windows, right? Um, you might take your, your kids apple picking or strawberry picking, but you don't go to, you don't take them, you know, to the butcher or the slaughterhouse because it's horrific. You know, in, in the disconnect, right, we 
live in such a process, processed and industrialized world that we're so far removed from what's happening to those animals that so many people, there's many people that don't know a hamburger comes from beef, you know, or where it comes from, that it comes from a cow. It could come from a pig because it has the word ham in it. Like people, they, they just don't even know anymore. And, you know, what you see in it, it's so processed, right? You, you don't, you're not raised on farms or near farms. Things aren't being killed in front of you. And even that process would be better than, you know, what's happening today in these in these farms. But um, and they're just so disassociated from the fact that if they're eating it on their plate, whether it's dairy or meat, someone and something had to die. Simple as that. Right. And and obviously that goes for the dairy industry as well. And it it, it completely baffles me how any just female the human race can not empathize with that right because as we know well there's even fallacies some people think that cows just continually lactate female cows continually lactate educated people not everybody even understands that that they have to keep producing calves to, to continually lactate right and um can't support all of those calves, particularly the male ones. So they're immediately shot, they're immediately disposed of, or very, you know, nearly immediately uh, disposed of because they're not going to be income producing. You don't need that many male cows to, to further the industry and the, you know, inhumanity and of, of that and the impact, you know, on the, on the mother cows. I mean, that's just completely off the charts. Nobody could ever, you know, imagine that. And, you know, I, I'm not aware of what, you know, your story is as far as going vegan. Um, I didn't even know all of that. And forgive me if we're going into a, a, a tangent, but. Um, I love these rambles with without, you know, a strict direction. <laughs> They're the most interesting conversations. Yeah. OK, so it was it was the sheer logic of the matter. Right. Because I thought, oh, you know, the cows produce milk. My in my then uneducated view, no one, no one was dying, which we know isn't true. Actually, the dairy industry is far in um, genders far more suffering and cruelty than the actual meat industries. Um, that, but it just hit me one day. I was just walking along, and I was like, "Why am I consuming dairy? I am not a baby human. I'm certainly not a baby cow. I just it, I just determined it was completely illogical, and then I just stopped." you know, full stop. Um, I was barely consuming any dairy products anyway, but I was just like, this, this, this makes no sense. And only after that, you know, uh, coming to that conclusion, did I then further understand what was really happening. And so, you know, I kind of feel like I lucked into veganism without having to be startled into it. Um, but yeah. And then when you live that kind of lifestyle, you know, vegan versus plant-based or plant-exclusive or whatever people want to call it, right, then that is very determinative of how you live your life in so many ways, right, what clothes you wear and won't wear and what your bags will be made of and um, um, what toiletries and cosmetics you'll buy and um, so on and so forth. So, um, and all of that with, you know, animal ingredients, first of all, you know, some of them have so many of these things in it. Because it's a cheap by- byproduct from the from animal agriculture, but 
you know, at the same time, it's 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 fueling the cycle. As I'm well. not a scientist. I haven't crunched the exact numbers, but it seems to me that if we are going to proliferate humankind beyond the next hundred years, we're going to have to make seismic changes to our lifestyles. And do you think that? humankind and governments are aware of that for example you know the 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 need to shift the paradigm with regards you know big agriculture and yeah use of animal products do you think that we're really aware of how many changes and the the degree of the shift that needs to take place Uh, i think a pandemic like we're experiencing now um may result in a necessary culling of the humans as a species um from just a you know, mathematical point of view of reducing the human population and thereby the uh, consumption of products, animal-based or otherwise, would reduce. But I don't, I can't yet foresee it based on the numbers coming out globally that'll be significant enough um, to really make an impact on the issue that you're mentioning. And But I think if countries really start making a shift, it would start in Europe, right, where for right here in the UK, you have national health. In the United States, they do not care. Your death and your health is your expense, right, regardless of the tax that you pay um, until you get old enough to qualify for certain government, you know, uh, funded health coverage, which isn't um, which isn't going to cover everything in, in, in total. Total. Um, it, it won't. Um, and I know that very well because my dad was a senior citizen and he passed away last year and I've been through tons and tons of medical bills and, you know, what the residual amounts that you still owe, um, you know, after the government, um, you know, funded uh, health care has been applied. So you still have to have fairly deep pockets, especially if you've got something chronic. And um, but where, right rules have been more strict as far as stay at home, et cetera, right? As you know, in the United States, there were some states that didn't never even closed and some states, they just don't care. They're reopening, you know, what the exact right answer is. I'm not going to pretend to know, but in the U.S. it doesn't matter because as I said, your life and your death is on your dime as there, you might say. Um, It's not a large concern of the government. So I think that change would have to come from Europe. I remember hearing here in the U.K. a few years ago and I was so struck by it, um, just uh, a requirement that at that time, that within five years, companies that make processed foods needed to reduce their fat or, or fat and calorie content of their products by 20%. Uh, that was being mandated by the government uh, because obviously the epidemic of obesity uh, weighs heavily on the NHS. So in America, they don't care. All it does, all it does in the United States is fuel the supposed healthcare industry, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, and onwards, you know, so on and so forth, and the food industry. It's fantastic. It's a perfect business model. You market ill health, you know, in the, in the grocery stores, then you get them into the doctors and the supposed healthcare system. And then that requires loads of pharmaceuticals. And it's, 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 it's just great for business. We gave big corporations a pass earlier on in terms of taxation. But what do you think about in terms of their responsibility to lead this paradigm shift? My concern is that the bottom line is profit and loss. As you say, the beholders, the shareholders, that's always going to be the main pressure in terms of which direction corporations go. But they really they hold the future in their hands really now, don't they? 
in terms of the systems and their processes and the you know how environmentally friendly they are moving forward and these things you know these sorts of changes are going to cost them in the short term aren't they are they going to make those changes and you know reduce their margins in the short term the, the only way you can change corporate re- behavior is by you know the pound euro dollar rupee whatever it is that you spend that is the only way you can vote so the necessary changes aren't going to be made then not, not i don't see voluntarily unless there's a radical change in leadership um you know but 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 who who's really in charge are governments in charge or are corporations in charge I think so. More corporations, right? Because we see, we see billions of dollars being given to governments in lobbying, don't we? For example. Oh, in the United States, until lobbying is just in my in my estimation, it's just legalized corruption, and until you have that, you have no hope. Of right, because you know there isn't a lobby for private citizens, and there shouldn't be one. But you combine lobbying with the electoral college, who, when it comes time to voting does not is not obligated to vote in accordance with the opinion of their constituents. And we saw that example in the last election um, that Trump won the electoral vote, Clinton won the popular vote nationally. And that is a mechanism that was put in place years ago by what's called the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution, etc. Because they did not trust the average citizen to to make good and informed decisions. So that takes the vote somewhat out of their hand. And that's that's a legacy thing that's still here that's affecting us today. And yeah, and as you rightly call out lobbying, right? Private citizens shouldn't need a lobby for themselves and we're never going to have one, right? But corporations will. So really, our greed and selfishness is going to be our undoing. I, I can't see, it, I cannot, when you put all these pieces together, it just seems to me, and I'm an eternal optimist, I'm a real optimist, I see myself as an extreme optimist, but I'm not optimistic about the future at all, because I don't think there are enough visionaries. Yeah. Look at people like Jeff Bezos and Zuckerberg, all these people, They. I don't see any of them doing anything really philanthropic. Yeah, they'll throw 100 million into the pot, for example, you know, and just to, for good people. But in terms of shifting the paradigm of the way they do things and using their brilliance to repair all the ills of the world, there doesn't seem to be any desire to do that. No. What's even on this, you know, the smaller scale, right? The the we all get get spam in our in our inbox or our spam folders and or identity theft and this and that. People just trying to hack and if if people just use their energy for something positive, you know, instead of just self-enrichment purely i agree with you the world could be in a much much better place but i guess that's the fatal flaw of you know humans and having the egos that they do i think that we need to take more responsibility for ourselves on a micro level in terms of being more sustainable ourselves because you know we can only control ourselves but we're not being set a very good example by the power mongers of the world are we no not in the least at least not that i not many that i've seen or any that i can immediately call to mind I'm an optimist, but I just think I cannot see 
com- big corporations taking a, a hit in the short term in order to like I talk, for example, about Burger King. You know, they've they've brought in the Impossible Burger recently. Mm-hmm. They could, but Burger King, if they wanted to be visionary at this yes. point and take the lead, they could say we're disposing of all meat products. We're only going to sell vegan burgers from this point onwards. Of course, in the short term. They would lose money, but they would turn in 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 one fell swoop. They would become yep. from they'd go from being yesterday's company, yesterday's fast food, unhealthy food company, to tomorrow's company. They would they would bring on a whole new generation of conscientious yep. um, animal lovers and forward thinking people. And so, in the long term, they would safeguard not only they they would not only make a huge impact on the environment, but they would safeguard their company in the future. But they there's no foresight in that respect. There's no but the shareholders of today are not willing to accept they're that. not going to do it they you know governments should the shareholders yeah governments should it. stop packaging at supermarkets by law they should start new innovations yeah. so that their packaging becomes illegal now it sounds like a logistical nightmare but it's a, a paradigm shift which could easily be implemented over the space of six to 12 months where people just go with refills to their supermarkets they get exactly the same amount of choices they've always had but they just can't refill for themselves rather than it is it literally it's unfathomable how much packaging i go through in a family of three in my family and then you just yeah. multiply that by yeah. eight billion people and you just think we are destroying the planet we we don't nurture it in any way we just use it yes oh absolutely and to just kind of take it further beyond the packaging right it's because our cultures have become so geared towards convenience with the advent of of, of plastic and these very disposable cultures right um and we know, call I it per- progress yeah i don't i personally don't use paper towels i don't use napkins paper napkins like the disposable ones Right. Um, Because these things all take resources, people who use all kinds of wipes for this thing and that thing. You know, I I speak even to my mom. I'm like, when you were growing up, did you have a roll of paper towels? What did you do when something spilled? You got a cloth, you wipe. (laughs) And then you threw it in the wash, you know, and gone are the days where you have to the ringer wash washing machine sort of system. You're not going out and beating them on a rock anymore. It's not that hard to just wash these things in your washing machine and pop them in the dryer. And um, but people are so geared. Bottled water is one of the biggest crimes of humanity, unless you actually live in the place where you have to truly fear a waterborne illness. You know, and the Western world and the largest number of people consuming all of this do not live in that dynamic. They don't live in that kind of environment. They're actually hurting themselves by consuming water that's sitting in plastic bottles with these chemicals leaching in, you know, further into their supply. And, um, you know, and that goes things, whether it's, you know, aluminum foil, you know, cling film, of course, or saran wrap that you'd call in the United States. Um, just all of these unnatural things that touch what we consume. Pesticides. So detrimental. Yeah. Teflons on our on our pans or just using aluminum. Yeah. People have no idea. They have no idea. And cancer is so prevalent in this modern world still, despite all the modern technology we have, because it's going into our systems, all these pesticides and poisons are going into our systems all of the time. And as you say, that's because of convenience, inverted commas, what we consider progress. Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. But it's got to come from both um, ends, hasn't it? It's got to come from the top and the bottom. We've got to take control ourselves in the micro. We've got to live a more sustainable life. We've got to take responsibility, but it's also got to come from the top for the, to make these big changes, which I think are required. But again, it's it's the, the customer has to demand it, and that's the only way. So when I moved back to London uh, in 2017, um, I was, so I that was my second time living in London. So I'd been out of London for about, five years, moved back in 2017. And I was shocked at the number of, you know, promotions. So like veganism had become such a big thing, you know, or at least plant-based, right? So every coffee shop, every chain, they're promoting their vegan menu, their plant-based menu, sandwich boards on so many sidewalks saying, we have oat milk, we have, you know, have a almond cappuccino or something like that. We have that here. Um, and that too, as I said, at, at, at the franchise places, whether it's the real Greek, it's, you know, giraffe, I don't know, barista, whatever. Um, but there's greater demand, but it, that's the only way it's, you know, until governments really understand that there is, that they have to look past the short term profit that's being made and turn the tide on this. Right? But if we were absolutely hopeless, we wouldn't, you know, people like you and I and, you know, many others wouldn't even try. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, I, I also consider how much I actually do try, you know, like I can I can moan about it. But how much of my life am I actually devoting to <laughs> shifting the paradigm? Well, by doing reaching people, doing podcasts, everything helps. Sometimes you just never know, you know, what can be the final straw that influences someone. And one thing that I do, right, because so I had a cafe in the United States and uh, near my hometown. Pittsburgh. Yeah, it was it wasn't even in cosmopolitan Pittsburgh. It was in. Um, uh, out, so in where the, you know, people weren't aware people, many, many people hadn't even heard of hummus. Right. And um, was that, <laughs> yeah, truly, was that after was that after you left the corporate world that you decided to no, open a vegan was, cafe? And was that straight afterwards? It was concurrent. So I was working. Okay. Um, yes, I was still very much in the corporate world and not living local to the place, but still um, heavily involved with, um, you know, with, with running it and uh, owning it, getting wow. it, etc. Um, Why did you choose Pittsburgh? Uh, well, uh, what happened was there was a little um, quaint cafe that was going to close. Um, as far as food, the menu went, there was, you know, it was um, for omnivores, but there was there was nothing very extensive anyway. But what I liked about it was they offered a lot of uh, a large selection of loose teas and whole bean coffees and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you just, yes, franchising is is, you know kind of the way of the world these days but it's really sad to see these little establishments close and I had always wanted to have um you know a cafe restaurant and so um yeah I bought it and then I bought it and I said well I'm not going to I am absolutely unwilling to earn anything um off of the suffering of an animal we're not going to have anything you know um animal based and um people said to me oh no it won't work it you know you can't do that here and the truth is it did very well it did far better than i expected 
Um, and the reality, if you think about food, right, is food. And food needs to taste good. And food is about taste and texture. Those are the two critical elements, right? Um, you know how even if you're just hungry for something, if you don't get that thing, you can keep eating a million things far more than you needed to eat, but you're not satisfied. So you'd have to be, you know, satiated as a taste and texture perspective, volume, et cetera. And as long as food tastes good, I mean, we'd had truck drivers come in who were, you could just see their face fall when they couldn't see any meat on the menu, right? But due to time constraints, they would order, you know, a sweet potato and black bean burger with X, Y, Z on it. And, you know, as um, you know, they, they, they were in the market for a burger and that was obviously as close as they were going to get. And then they're after they're having it, they're literally licking their plates clean, you know, but, but also what I did was I never mentioned the word vegan, right? I didn't put vegan, vegan this, no, never. Only in the fine print at the bottom of the menu did I say that, you know, that, oh, really? you know, animal derived products used, nice. you know, I didn't have yeah. little green leaves and all this stuff over everything. It was cheese. Yes. We had, and what, what I focused on was what would be largely what would be comfort food in the United States, particularly that, you know, vegan people might miss things that are very cheesy and creamy or pizzas. And so with a large menu of, um, you know, like macaroni and cheeses, all sorts of different varieties and preparations, pizzas, you know, things that obviously, well, there was a full, um, you know, array of baked goods, you know, whether it's cakes or all other sorts of pastries, everything, everything vegan. Um, absolutely. But I mentioned that word because it's not like if you have a cake and it's made with flax instead of an egg, it's not like, oh, I don't want it. It doesn't have egg in it. Right. The average omnivore does not care. They're not checking the label to make sure there's egg in it. Right? <laughs> You're not checking the label to make sure that it's chicken stock instead of vegetable stock, etc. The only label readers are those, you know, they're, they're vegans, they're vegetarians, etc. And as long as food tastes good, that's all people care about. People would say to me, what kind of cheese did you use in the mac and cheese? This is so good. And I'm like, it's, it's not cheese. There's no cheese you can go out and buy. It's made from cashews. Um, you know, we had a huge taco, you know, huge taco salad with you know, meat made out of walnuts. People couldn't even tell from a texture perspective that that wasn't ground beef. So there's a lot of possibilities and things that you can easily do. I think a lot of people struggle with transitioning their, their diet, even if they aspire to, right, away from the foods they know uh, over to a vegan diet. Often they'll say, oh, well, this is very expensive. And I'm like, having a vegan diet is the least expensive diet in the world. It depends on how you do it. Um, if you want to change your changing your diet, then yeah, it might still be a little expensive because you want to have chicken wings, but you have to buy the, you know, whether it's, you know, soy based or, you know, based vegan version. If you want, you know, vegan cheese that tastes phenomenal, you might have to pay a little bit more for it. All these things, if you, as I said, if you don't want to change what, if you want to change what you eat, but not change what you eat, but if you expand your palate and, you know, beans, vegetables, fruits, these things aren't going to drive you to bankruptcy. Yeah, really good point. Um, 
Did you know that you can only taste five different flavors? Actually, most of your, you know, eating sensation comes from your sense of smell. You can smell thousands of different flavors and scents, but you can only taste five different things. Yeah, isn't it like you had, I remember as a child, we've seen that little diagram of the tongue and where it's bitter, sweet, tangy, something, something. But yeah, now that you mentioned yeah. it, that's exactly. familiar, but yeah, that's true. Does the cafe still is it does it still exist and is it, are you still the proprietor? Yes, it does. Fantastic. You must be particularly proud of that. Yes, yes. So um yeah, it was it was I was surprised that not, not surprised, but yeah, that it did as well as it did. And then in order to really, really take it further, you know, you really needed the the owner to be there and I wasn't going to I couldn't see in my life that I was really gonna be there locally. Mm. So I sold it to you know, someone who was going to keep it vegan and definitely uh, take it further, which is what's happened. So, you know, it's, I'm glad I started it. I don't care, you know, who knows and who doesn't know. All I'm glad is in this middle of nowhere place, there's a place you can go to, you know, (laughs) that has. uh, Yeah, that's so cool. A positive impression that you've made on the world. That's fantastic. Tell us about leaving America or indeed leaving the Western world and moving to India. Was that a career? Did you do it before? Did you move for a job? Did you move because you wanted a change of lifestyle? You wanted to you wanted to sample something completely different. What? Tell us about that. Well, um, so when I was uh, quite a few years ago, we won't say how many. Um, I unwittingly <laughs> married somebody who was born and raised in India. And so oh, wow. time, yes, I knew they were from India, but I would say the whole marriage thing is unwitting. And, uh, but, um, but not really understanding the, the ramifications of that, but, um, cause I hadn't been to India before and, um, and I don't see myself as a traditional or conservative person. So Culturally, you would think that's not a culture that I would uh, warm to. Um, but so that's how I started visiting and became embroiled in that. Then um, the first time I moved there was with my now beloved ex-husband and um, then moved onward to other places after that. But then I moved there two subsequent times um, for work and, you know, for work, but, you know, also to satisfy personal desire um so you fell in love with the lifestyle you fell in love with the culture and the place yes and it's a place that i i don't know if you've visited um yes. and i'm not one of those people that you know i have never seen eat pray love um i don't you know i'm not a hippie i am about as straight edge as you know you can be i don't drink i, I i've never i've never drank I have had alcohol, but I have never enjoyed it. I have never been drunk. I have never smoked anything in my life, even once. Forget about taking, you know, narcotics or anything like that. Um, So I'm about in that way, you know, as straight edge as you can be. So I'm not one of these. I want to hang out in Goa and let my hair get all matted and, you know, turn into dreads. Um, You must have a vice of some kind. I'm not that kind of person at all. And um, but there's something about the culture and the people um, that just gets into you it's a very flawed society like all of them um but yeah it it just kind of it gets into your system and for me the the main attraction um well maybe there's two but first and foremost is how people are well it's just the relationships and the connectivity that people have there and i'm not talking about you know socializing for the sake of something to do on a friday night 
Um, it's the real kind of like emotional bonds that you form with people there. It, it's very different from any culture in the Western developed world. The closest, you know, maybe as you start moving into like Italy and Greece, it starts to change a little bit. Right. But, you know, our cultures are very, every person for themselves, right? Self-sufficiency, stiff upper lip. You don't ask people for help. It's, you feel it's even an imposition um, to, you know, phone up to ask anybody for a favor. People find it now intrusive just to make a phone call uh, without asking if it's a good time first um, to talk. And um, it's, our cultures are just, despite all the social media and connectivity are becoming so increasingly detached and aloof. Um, I'd say British culture to an you know extent as well is even avoidant in some respects. Um, right, you know how it is here. If you get on the train, if there's just a couple people, you might be having a nice chat. As more people get on, the quieter the, the carriage will become. Right. And you know, God help you if you know it's crowded and you're you're having a, a chat. It's disarming, isn't it? When you first go to India, it's disarming. In my experience, anyway, disarming how friendly people are. You you become a little bit suspicious to start with because of your own culture. <laughs> yeah. You're like, why are these people being yeah. so friendly? What do they want from me? What are they going to take from me? And then when, once yeah. you become immersed in a culture and spend a bit of time there, you realize, actually, they're just the friendliest people yeah. you've ever met. <laughs> Absolutely. They're so warm. They're so inviting. And I'm really grateful for the time I have spent there. And... I hope to get back there, you know, again on a more permanent basis someday. But um, where, did, where, where did you live? Um, I lived in uh, the last two times I was there. I lived in Pune, which is in the state of Astra, about three hours from Bombay. And um, and then prior to that, mm -hmm. the first time I lived kind of in the northern central bit of the country in a state called Madhya Pradesh. Are we talking about sp sprawling metropolises? Well, uh, I was in the I was in the urban part. Yes, but where I lived in Pune, for example, was just a fairly quiet residential street. But of course, it is still in, you know, within within a city, not out in the country as such. Could you imagine yourself living there, you know, longer term than later in your life? Could you imagine yourself settling down there? Um, that active desire. Yes. Wow. Just because yeah, of because of the people, because of the way of life, because of the what is it specifically? It, it, it's mainly because of the people, and then the, the, the and it sounds uh, it may sound a bit silly to say, but actually living in the world, I find it to be very dull. It's things, and this might sound silly. Things generally work. You know, life is honestly day to day life is pretty dull in India. You have a lot of challenges. Um, and, and people even operate very di differently. They they operate more emotionally uh, rather than just logically. And if you really live there, one would know what I mean by that. Not that everybody is illogical and doesn't have any sense. That's not the case. But kind of it's it's emotions come, you know, or at least take up a much better, a greater part of the equation uh, in interactions there and even how things 
But the feeling that I got when I was there was that people were that was that people were living more in the moment or more short term because you know in the West we sort of we're plan we're constantly living for tomorrow, planning for the longer term, you know, making our you know sorting out our yeah. savings and working out what we're going to do yeah. further down the line. In India, because of it's because it's so much su- such a poor country yeah. by comparison, people are living. But day to day. So they're thinking, you know, a lot of people are thinking, okay, how Mm -hmm. am I going to get enough money together so that we can, I can have dinner with my family tonight? And that seems to be much more of a focus rather than, you know, where am I going to retire to in 10 years time? Right. But, but that's tempered a bit by regardless of income level, the fact that people have community and it sounds like you've traveled around a bit. I don't know if, if, if you have, and if you ever noticed, like say in the evenings, you would see you know, even if you're in urban well-to-do areas, you can't get away from poverty in India, right? So you, you can't escape seeing it. And, you know, in the evening when kind of, when people have kind of gotten through their day, you know, you'll see poorer people congregated together. You know, the men might be having a chat, the women will be having a chat. Um, they have each other. There are people there to help you through, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends. And that is such a key difference, whereas in our cultures, it's just I have to do everything myself. Plus, with respect to time, right, time is much more fluid there. And I'm not claiming to be an authority, but, um, you know, people just live more in the moment, which is typical of cultures that live in warmer climates. Um, You know, in India, maybe it's the sense of, you know, reincarnation or et cetera, et cetera, that you know, life is ongoing. It's not, I have to, you know, just... We all want to have good health and, you know, basic healthcare is really important. But I do believe that materialism is the biggest myth in modern, in the modern world. And it's so hard to truly believe that being, you know, not being materialistic is a good way to be because people all, everybody deep down, I think things that they believes that they need certain amounts of materials. But as I said, Indian people are the happiest I knew, happiest people that I've met. And there was a lack of materialism there. Yes, I would say. There was a desire for basic yes. needs, but there and wasn't kind of- a real materialistic drive. And, you know, you said to me a minute ago, you can't escape uh, poverty in India. Which isn't true across all levels of society. Many of, them, many of them can be as materialistic as any Westerner, and many of them are. Right. And it can be a very show off culture where you have cultures where you have extremes of, you know, poverty and not. It can be a very show off culture as far as, you know, I have this kind of car. I have this kind of, you know, bag and this much jewelry and all of that kind of. And how. Yeah. But how often do you, you know, you strive for these materials? How often when you get these materials, do you feel as happy as you thought you were going to be when you were dreaming about having the material? Well, you don't. Everything's just kind of, a, you know, that all is just kind of a disappointment. And, you know, if you think about, you know, awareness or, oh, I, fi- I wanted this car. I finally got it. Okay. Great. Um, but the novelty of that wears off very quickly. But if you meet up with friends, family, people you actually hold dear and have a great time, I think the effect of that, you know, is much warmer and long lasting 
and how you feel about your car or any materialistic thing that, that you buy. True, true. It's always a disappointment. You said to me a second ago, you, um, you can't escape poverty in India. But I would say exactly the same thing about California. It's absolutely rife. Would you say that, <laughs> would you say that uh, people take care of the poor uh, better in India than they do in America? Mm, not. Well, I think there's a maybe to an extent, but the, but the level of the population is so great. Uh, but I think that there are more people who are mindful of, you know, maybe giving something to charity and donating or just helping others um, a little bit more than what our very individualistic cultures would do. And also that's kind of, I think, exacerbated in our cultures, right? That it's, you know, you need to pull yourself up always by your own bootstraps and you're uniquely for you and you don't want to be a burden on anybody else that doesn't really enter into the equation um so much in a culture like india of course you want to be responsible and self-sufficient but it's not you know a personal failing to need help and i think that you know that kind of mentality goes into a lot of mental health issues etc as well and the effect you know degrees of isolation or just very superficial interactions rather than rather than having really um you know meaningful interactions right you we we all have somebody we're related to for the most part and the vast majority of those conversations are you know more often than not probably just superficial if somebody asks you how you are nobody really wants to hear the answer you know it's just a courtesy it's a pleasantry yeah absolutely um you you use the word use the word mindful there momentarily um you you did quite a bit of meditation is that right you've been on some meditation retreats were they in india or you just generally interested in meditation um no i have been to um vipassana in india um and i'm very interested in it um i don't observe vipassana in its you know, pure form every day, but I have my own methods of, um, you know, meditation and just kind of mental space for myself um, that I try to make on a nearly daily basis. And, uh, mm. and kind of going back to leaving the corporate world, right? And, and, and consumerism and materialism, which you also, you know, raised, right? That stuff doesn't make us happy. It doesn't, it's not very long before you forget what watch or radio or electronic that you had um and you realize you can actually live without and don't need so i'm fine not getting that senior corporate level paycheck because the way i live is very simple and yes minimalistic to a way to an extent and that just makes life much simpler and you know, gives you more possibilities of what you can do in the present and the future. Yeah. You know, this whole idea of we don't need all of this stuff, it's such a cliche, but how do, why do we keep making the same mistake over and over again with it? Because we still live, you know, especially in the Western world, an extremely materialistic and consumerist place, don't we? We live that way. But that's what fuels capitalism, right? If it was like, like on our grandparents' generation and maybe in our parents when they were younger, you only bought something when you needed it, right? It wasn't like, well, I don't, I don't need a new car. I don't need a new phone. Now people are like, oh my God, this new model came out. I have to go get it, despite the fact that what they have works perfectly. Yeah, and you have more people. You need more employment. You can't have more employment. You can't have more people. You can't have more revenues if you don't expand um, your customer base. 
And if you've read the book Sapiens, that oh my god, brilliant that subject very well, right? So absolutely brilliant. One of my heroes, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, so what else in terms of your daily regimen? Then are you really into nutrition in general? Do you uh, do you have any tips for me in terms of you know daily workout routines or nutrition things that you, your sort of go to uh, foodstuffs or bodily movements that that you could recommend that are particularly effective in terms of health? Um, well, I think just the fact that you are, you know, exercise and movement is so is so important. Um, I'm not looking to be, you know, a bodybuilder. I certainly actually I I am averse to that t- type of physique, but I think it's very important to keep ourselves healthy um, and take care of quality of life rather than and take responsibility for our quality of life rather than wanting the easy way of everything and treating ailments with, you know, the shortcuts of taking pills, right? And the culture of continue to eat what you want, just take a pill. And it doesn't matter about your blood pressure, just do what you want, just take this, keep having these things with lots of salt and lots of this. Um, it, it's, it's all totally fine. Um, you know, as far as exercise goes, you, you know, I do just different sets of things that, you know, to some degree engages the main, you know, all of your muscle groups, whether it's legs, your core, arms, back, um, just to keep things moving. You don't have to look perfect, but if you keep things moving, things are going to keep moving for a lot uh, than they will if you're sedentary. And, um, you know, and then of course, you know, a degree of cardio is, uh, you know, an additional ben- beneficial element just to keep all of that working well. Um, as far as food goes, yeah, I'm pretty particular um, about food. I love food. I love it in volumes. I will always be American in that way. And uh, if, you know, my go-to food, because it's been my main way of eating for so long, um, really, you know, like two decades is Indian food. But um, oh, love but it. that's a huge, that's a huge variety of things, right? It's not just the menu, at, you know, from the curry shop on the corner. It's, it's far more, it's far more than that. And I don't use oil at all for cooking. Um, similarly, I never drink juice. Um, the reason why is, well, well, first off, I never really cared for juice. Um, I like to eat the fruit, not have it as a juice. But the reality is once you, like this simple example of orange juice, you've taken all the juice and moved all the fibers and this and that from it, which um, then you've created an imbalanced thing. The fruit was perfect, right? in its natural state. Similarly, it's the same with oil, right? And so the, the, the fibers balance out the sugars and, and all these things, and it's much more beneficial if you have it. Same with oil. You don't need oil. So generally, the less processed, the better. Absolutely. You don't need um, for cooking. What cooks is heat, right? Now, obviously, you, you don't want things to stick, but if something's sticking, you just add a, a little bit of water or maybe like some, you know, veggie broth or something like that. But like if you do some basic Western cooking, right, you often start with onions, garlic, throw that in the pan, turn the gas on, sprinkle a little salt. The salt causes the onions to remove the water that's in them. Right. And that's usually enough to even go on. But, you know, like I said, worst case scenario, maybe you have to sprinkle in some, um, you know, a little bit of water to keep it from sticking until you move on to adding something with more moisture as you're in the cooking process. Um, but, yeah, well, like I said, with oil, it, it's the same thing. It's not that you know, it, it's not that the olive is bad. It's just perfect as an olive. 
the 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 last um, podcast that I did, I spoke to a brilliant uh, nutritionist and food futurologist who told me that cacao is one of the best superfoods. So oh, yeah, it has great level of antioxidants. I always keep cocoa powder um, and stick it in lots of things because it's good for you. You know, especially if it's something that has natural sweetness, or maybe you're going to add sugar to already. In any case, like throw it in there. The more, the better. Because <laughs> it is. It's great. Yeah. Great so I've been having that in the morning. So maybe my takeaway from this conversation is that I'm not going to use oil anymore. That would be a huge, that would be a huge win for you and your family. Nice. Uh, you still need fat. You still need fat. It's just, those aren't, it's not from that kind of source, whether it's oils or, you know, butter, this or that. But, you know, not that you have to, you know, issue everything, but it, that's just adding fat and unnecessary calories to to what you're eating as well in addition to the imbalance that it presents what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen oh hmm that's really a pop quiz sort of question i don't know what i have the answer to that but, uh... <laughs> i know i usually have to give somebody a little bit of time to prepare for that sort of question because a lot of the time they can't answer it straight away and then after i put down the phone they're like 10 minutes later like oh damn why didn't i say that i see a lot of things every day that defy logic oh. but which defy science right but i think what what <laughs> what most of us not not maybe you and I so much, but I think what most of the world eats and consumes every day absolutely defies science. Mm. <laughs> Good point. Well, I'll let you ruminate on that question, but maybe you can tell me in the meantime, who inspires you and why? Is there anybody, a particular influencer that you have at the moment that really inspires you, that you love and has a, you feel has a real positive impact on the world and you? I Honestly, I can't think of anyone, one person. Um, but you know, I would certainly appreciate, you know, the, the Jane Goodalls of the world, or even here, the David Attenboroughs and the, you know, the attention they're trying to bring to things and uh, present to people and to engender some appreciation of the physical world and other beings outside the self. Great. And, um, in terms of reading material, have you read anything that's particularly inspired you recently? Well, there's, there's two books that, um, uh, there's two books by the same author that I have read and I will revisit again and again. Um, the author's name, uh, deceased, but the author's name is Anthony DeMello, D-E-M-E-L-L-O. Um, I've heard the name, never read yeah. any of his stuff. One book is called Awareness. Um, oh, yes. Yes, I do know. The that. other one is which... I think is the end all be all. If you if you can only get one, you get the one called the way to love. Okay. And it provides a lot of reflection about you know how we live our life, what it is we really need. Obviously, attachment to to people, things, places, and you know, but can really bolster your sense of self because um, our perception are so largely dictated by the cultures and societies in which we live. We think we need to have, um, you know, the iPhone or whatever Android phone, you know, you need the latest and greatest because society says so. If I don't achieve X, I am a failure because society says that this is what success looks like, you know. And I, what was it, like John Lennon or whomever said, you know, if asked when you what you want to be when you grow up, you know, 
people want to be an architect, doctor, maybe an archaeologist, but nobody says they just want to be happy. Yeah. Which, and if you don't have that and you don't have your house, have much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so does um, Anthony DeMello come from it, come at it from a scientific perspective or more of a spiritual perspective? More of a spiritual perspective. He's actually, a, he, he was actually a Jesuit priest in India. But these books take in, you know, perspectives that are obviously very much Buddhist, um, Christian, etc. But th- but at the same time, um, they're not they're not religious books in any way. They are very much spiritual books, um, you know, that even fellow atheists can enjoy. I, I I've heard and, about. I think awareness is probably his most famous book, right? But you're saying that that's not his magnum opus. The one that I've gone to the most, back to the most, is the way to love. Um, but awareness is absolutely fantastic and you'll not go wrong with either one of them but both are ideal amazing uh one final question for you what makes you most happy well i have on a daily basis what i call my free happiness and that's which just self-sustaining free happiness not what you get so to speak from other beings or time spent with other beings so it's uh um exercising um music um tea and animals is this part of your daily regimen at least from three of the four you know endorphins from i'm not tea doesn't exactly give you endorphins but it still makes you feel warm and happy but uh you know but from exercise from music from being you know with you know uh you know animals who are just so so much more genuine regardless of their disposition than any human is largely capable of being um though that's what i call my free happiness and i want it every day <laughs> all four of them oh my god beautiful i'm so pleased you, you spoke about animals because i could talk to you about animals all day long i have a dog and until i had a dog i didn't really have that much empathy for animals but having had a dog for the last seven years it's completely opened up my world and um given me such connectivity with all animals it's wonderful and you know they say yes. dogs have they're, they're each one is its own unique, individual, engaging, amazing personality. Yeah. And dogs, of course, have small brains, but that doesn't mean they're stupid. And they can teach us so much in terms of living in the moment, living oh. simply, living purely. I say I've learned more about being a decent human being from animals than from any human on the planet. Well, that is the strap line for the whole show. <laughs> That's my perfect soundbite. <laughs> amazing i've said it a million times believe it honestly like i said in the all the fostering that i've done you know putting random animals together you know whether they spend a few days a few weeks or years together and seeing that interaction and how genuine they are um and how one will just care for the other regardless of you know in many instances of age gender this that nothing like it so it, there must have been examples, though, where they've sort of turned on each other, though, no? Oh, well, yes, of course, that, that will happen. And even like humans, right, if they can sense fear in another one, that kind of primordial reaction, they, it's, it's difficult for them to control. That's actually true in humans because humans will always seize upon, you know, the weaker person in the pecking order. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's kind of difficult to avoid. But um, 
I don't know if, if, if um, our, our, our dear mutual friend told you, but, you know, I have my two, three Indian cats and, you know, this will be their um, be there. I'm trying to remember if this is their second or third time living here in the UK. Once I get them over, um, they've been to the States. So they've been, you know, they're from India. They're just Indian street cats that, you know, came off the street. Um, they've moved back to India a couple times. They've been to America a couple times. They've been in the UK. So they've lived in central London, you know, and I, five you know <laughs> oh my god you must have to jump through all sorts of hoops in order to get them through the quarantine and stuff oh yes 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 and um you know if you ever need any advice about relocating your pet always feel free to reach out to me and oh wow absolutely <laughs> yeah but um yeah they're only five years old uh and that's you know how much they've traveled so uh yes and now the next hurdle is um getting them to be the outdoor cat they've always dreamed of being. Right. Yeah. I often think about that, you know, like when people tell me they've got house cats, I'm like, well, that's not the natural state of a cat. But I suppose if they've, if they, if you're putting them in a different environment, it's going to take them a little time to get used to their new surroundings. Yes. And, you know, I've struggled with that, that precise kind of moral and ethical issue where, you know, where I'm living with them right in central London, I can't let them be indoor outdoor. You know, despite the fact they would get out of my window and get into the neighbor's flat. Um, but, right, it's not safe for them. And, you know, I would struggle with what am I doing to them? Is this is this just, should I do, you know, a different environment? Should I have never taken them off the street? Um, but in the case in India, I mean, they probably wouldn't still, they, they genuinely probably wouldn't, you know, India or anywhere, um, you know, but but particularly in an urban area, they they probably wouldn't have survived, whether it's, you know, they couldn't fend for themselves. There's, you know, you have lots of stray dogs, you have lots of traffic, you have lots of the, the odds of them living a long, healthy, are pretty slim. Um, so that's kind of where I'm out on it. But, you know, I completely agree that the absolute best scenario is if they can be indoor, outdoor. I think they struck gold with you. But in Wales, they would be, they're free to roam, right? Yeah, they'll be, they're not over here yet. Um, they're, they're presently in their second residence in the United States with my mum. Um, because I'm a little bit back and forth in the States and, and Wales in my transition over here. So uh, kind of when I move over like fully once and for all, uh, then they'll come with me, which will be on the next trip. And um, I was actually going to bring them with me when I came this time. But all the hassles of travel in this kind of climate, I decided that we'll get them on the phone. Are you loving Wales? Um, It's just kind of, you know, aesthetically similar to where I grew up. So it's actually kind of surreal, <laughs> but, and, um, but it's, it's a beautiful country. Looking forward to getting out. And yeah. The th it's a, such, it's a beautiful country, particularly in the summer. Last year, the summer was on a Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> well, this year I've been, cause despite <laughs> my love of India and the, the years and time spent there, I truly deplore hot weather. And, and by hot weather, I mean, you know, the temperatures climb into the teens centigrade or get into like the upper 50s Fahrenheit you know that renders me largely unhappy uh so <laughs> I don't prefer it um but um but here we've had a lot of sun very little rain for the last couple of weeks you know much to my chagrin but it it is beautiful when you look out the door and go out for a walk which fortunately where we're staying 
there are some trails and quite scenic um, spots. You can easily feel that you've gotten out in a way, in a meaningful way, very far from home. Uh, amazing. I, I feel like we're just at the tip of the I feel like we're just at the tip of the iceberg and we could talk for days, but you've been extremely generous with your time already. So I'm going to leave it there. But it's been an absolute pleasure and an education to speak to you. Well, thank you so much for the for the invitation to chat. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thanks so much, Oliver. <sighs> the natural high. You can follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the site at naturalhighclub.com for loads more pods.